Hello there, and welcome to Gilded in Blood, the Horror Lit Podcast. My name is Kevin. Thank you for joining me yet again to talk about another wonderful short story. This is a short shock episode, and we are going to introduce to the podcast for the first time one of the greats, one of my favorite authors of all time, Ray Bradbury. Now, I would like to say that we would be talking about more about his life and, and everything like that because we can maybe pull in one of his novels, but he really didn't write much horror in the novel format. Uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes approaches it, but it's not quite horror in the, in the realm that we're really talking about it. But he wrote some spectacular horror short stories. So Ray Bradbury, I have a feeling, will be a regular on the Short Shock episodes for this podcast. And today's is our first one is called The Whole Town Sleeping. Now, this is a kind of an interesting little short story because it stands alone by itself as a short story perfectly well. It's wonderful. And I'll talk a little bit about where I first encountered it, a little bit more of you know Kevin's personal history. For those of you who are terribly, terribly bored of that, you're going to have to sit through a little bit more. But it is also a, a slightly altered version of this short story is one of the chapters in one of his novels, Dandelion Wine with a a few things changed that makes it read a little bit differently. So it's kind of an interesting situation where it was kind of published on its own in one format and then slight changes were made and then it appeared as a chapter in this book. So uh, very interesting to to kind of look at. I suggest that you read both versions. Please do go read Dandelion Wine, not horror, but still a wonderful, wonderful book. But let's start focusing on this short story, The Whole Town Sleeping. Now, before we jump into the story, here we go. <laughs> More stuff about my history. I pretty early on realized that horror was my thing. I, I just, I loved it. I, I, I was kind of born loving horror. It feels like some of my earliest memories are really enjoying scary movies, scary stories, things of that nature. Luckily, my father seemed to have kind of the same bent. He liked some uh, horror and ghost stories and things. And we had a couple of books around the house, one of which was a book called Alfred Hitchcock presents stories for late at night. Now, most of us know Alfred Hitchcock as a director, the birds, psycho, uh, rear window, so on and so forth. But he also, of course, hosted his wonderful show, Alfred Hitchcock presents, where a number of short stories were adapted to teleplays, I guess you would say, in much the same way as the Twilight Zone, though these were much more suspense and even tipping over into horror. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But he also, you know, he kind of stamped his name on book collections, uh, short story collections that were usually of the macabre nature, crime, thriller, and just straight up horror. And that was one of the books that was in my house when I really started coming to the written page and seeking out horror on the written page. So I would make it kind of my (laughs) weekend getaway kind of thing. My parents, this is so stupid. (laughs) I'm sorry. If if this bores you, just skip ahead. Just ignore it. But this is a good memory for me. My parents had this ratty old comforter, but it had been used so much. You know, it was so old that it had just the, the most wonderful 
you know, uh, it was it was so soft and very comfortable and everything. And I would take this comforter uh, sometimes to my parents' chagrin. They're like, "Where's our comforter?" Well, Kevin has it, uh, and I would spread it out on the living room floor and I would lay down and I would read uh, short stories and, and books and things like that. And I remember encountering. Ray Bradbury's The Whole Town Sleeping out of this book for the first time. My parents are uh, watching TV. I'm sitting there. I'm reading this story, and it screwed me up. This story scared the living bejesus out of me. It was so wonderful. And from then on, I, I really I, I love this collection of stories. We are definitely definitely going to talk more about some of the stories that come from this collection. You'll be surprised at some of the things that you will probably recognize out of this particular book. Alfred Hitchcock presents Stories for Late at Night, but this was really one of the ones that kind of turned all my dials to 11, and I was like, this is wonderful. So I would like to talk about this story with you. If you've not read it, please go seek it out, either in the Dandelion Wine version or the, the standalone version. They're both excellent. But let's get into this wonderful short story, The Whole Town Sleeping. Now, like most of Bradbury's work, this takes place in Illinois, which was kind of home ground for Ray Bradbury. And it takes place as the sun setting uh, in the middle of, as it says, of Illinois country. And we start following this spinster, Lavinia Nebs. And I just want to take a moment here and say, you know, when I say spinster, when I say, you know, old maid, what do you think? You probably think of somebody with kind of, you know, uh, gray hair and stooped over wearing a shawl and so on and so forth. No, she's 37. <laughs> and I, I love the propensity of stories from this time to view women who are unmarried by the time they're in their like 30s as just lost causes. <laughs> they are they are completely gone. They're just spinsters. They're going to be this way for the rest of their life. No man will ever want them. And it also reminds me of uh, one of the reasons I find uh, It's a Wonderful Life, such a good movie. I know this is kind of, this is a, a very big tangent, but uh, I love in a, It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey is getting to see his life uh, without him in it. And the the worst thing, not that his brother died, not that uh, the town has kind of fallen into uh, a prostitute ridden wasteland. <laughs> the worst thing, was that the woman he fell in love with, Donna Reed's character, she never married. She's a spinster. She works at the library. <laughs> the music swells like, oh, no. It's absolute madness. I, I just love stuff from this era that just, if you're not married by the time you're 30, if you're a woman, uh, just we're going to throw you on the trash heap. <laughs> so this story actually follows three uh, spinsters, unmarried women in their 30s, God forbid. Uh, but the first and the main character is Lavinia Nebs. And Francine is one of her uh, friends who comes over and they're going to go out for, for a night on the town. However, something has been going on in this town. There is a man who is stalking around and killing women, strangling women to death. He's called the Lonely One. And so far, there have been a few of these murders. And Francine is not too keen on going to the movies with all of this happening, this tiny little Illinois town where this killer is ranging around. And Lavinia just isn't having it. She, she's like, I, I don't care about this. We just had one of the murders. They're a month apart. Uh, he's not going to do anything for another month. We're absolutely safe. 
Now, of course, I think that's a fool. <laughs> I think that's a foolish thing to think, but that's where Lavinia is. She doesn't want her whole life to be put on pause uh, because this this man's going around killing women. She wants to go see the movie. She wants to enjoy her life. So whether you agree with that or not, that's our setting. Now, the other thing that is important to note in this story is kind of the setup of the town. And Ray Bradbury is one of the best at creating this sense of mood and place without boring the living hell out of you. Sometimes when people go into geographic regions of the of the place they're talking about and really kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of the setting, it drags. <laughs> it's it's very very boring. Ray Bradbury does it very well. He he smoothly kind of integrates this geography. The topography of this story is very, very important because Lavinia lives a little bit apart from the town. Most of the town is on one side of this ravine where, you know, this, this valley where it kind of goes down. We have steps going down and then a bridge over this running river and then up to the town. Now, Lavinia lives on the other side. And her two friends, Francine and Helen, as we're going to get to here in a moment, they live on kind of the town side. So it becomes quickly apparent that Lavinia is going to have to go home alone by herself after dark, down the steps into this ravine and then up the other steps and to her home. So, of course, that's going to play a large part in kind of the second half of this story. So, kind of keep that in your mind as they're, they're walking along and talking. So, of course, Francine does not want to do this. She's like, this is a, this is a terrible, terrible idea. And Lavinia's like, oh, posh, it's, it's not that big a deal. And they start going down into the ravine. And lo and behold, they see something over there in a clump of bushes, and it's Eliza Ramsell, and she's dead. <laughs> okay, so now we have yet another victim. And of course, they scream, and, and we kind of cut, and then we come back, and the cops are there, and, and of course, she's been strangled by the lonely one. And of course, Francine is even more adamant. This is just a terrible idea. We should probably put this off. And Lavinia says, nope, we're going to the movies. I'm not going to let this ruin our night. And they meet up with Helen, and they they let Helen know. And of course, Helen and Francine scene are kind of a united front on this. They, they really think this is a terrible idea. And the best thing about this story is, again, this sense of setting, but also the sense of mood. Anybody who has ever read Ray Bradbury knows how absolutely masterful he is at creating this sense of not only nostalgia, but the sense of this worrisome sense of dread. Something is going to happen. So as they're walking along, of course, the sun's setting, it's starting to get dark, and everybody is off the street. They quickly realize they're really the only ones walking on the street, and people are kind of slamming in doors and chill, you know, hurting their children in and kind of pulling the shades on the, on the windows. And as it starts to get darker, it gets more lonely and more quiet and really this oppressive sense of of fear kind of s starts to take over and it's just a wonderful wonderfully uh, atmospheric uh, descriptions that Bradbury puts into this story. It's absolutely wonderful. So, of course, they get to the downtown area and they stop at the drugstore to get some mint chews to, you know, eat during the movie and the 
person who's kind of running the drugstore says, oh, Miss Miss Lavinia, yeah, there was actually a person in here asking about you uh, earlier. And she's like, okay, who is that? I don't know. He, he's kind of this kind of uh, tallish guy and everything. And he says, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's Lavinia. And uh, and the guy asks, where, where does she live? And they kind of stops and the other two women are like, you didn't. <laughs> the druggist is like, yeah, it kind of it just kind of slipped out. So now we have somebody asking after Lavinia and now knows where she lives. So the sense that uh, this is just this is really the time to kind of pull the ripcord on this night and really kind of uh, back off it is starting to get very, very heavy. And of course, Lavinia kind of is taken aback for a moment, but she says, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to worry. I, I do not want my life to be ruled by fear. I'm going out to the movies. I'm going to enjoy my time. If you two, you know, scared little hens want to go home, that's fine. But I'm going to go see this damn movie. So, uh, of course, they, they go into the movie and they start watching the movie. The, the manager comes out and says, okay, we're going to cut all of our short subjects uh, and we're just going to go straight to the movie because the police have a, a an 11 o'clock curfew. They want everybody home because of what's going on. So there's there's this building sense that something is going to happen. It just it, it continues to kind of get layer upon layer upon layer. And right as the movie starts, one of the women, I think it's Helen, turns around and says, there's a man just came in and sat right behind us. And Lavinia's like, oh, would you just stop? Just watch the movie. And Helen raises holy hell. No, I'm calling the manager. Help, help, help. And then immediately it cuts to after the movie and they're sitting in the drugstore. Uh, they're they're drinking a chocolate malted or whatever. And they're all laughing at each other, they're specifically at Helen. And Helen's kind of laughing at herself. And this guy was like the theater owner's brother from Racine. It, it was not a big deal at all. And Lavinia just uses this as just a, a counterpoint. This is why you don't get freaked out about things, because you start seeing things that aren't actually there. It's not that big a deal. We're going to be fine. So they, they leave the drugstore, and they start walking home, and it's you know 11.30, then it's 11.45, and then finally the clock is striking 12, and these, these bongs kind of echoing out over the country, and of course they are the only ones out. And Helen says, okay, you two are coming, and you are staying at my place. We'll, we'll have hot chocolate. It will be fun. Tomorrow we'll, we'll go hang out, but... Lavinia, you are not going home alone because Lavinia says, well, you guys aren't going to walk me across to my home and then have to walk back down that ravine. You guys are, you, you would have heart attacks. So I will walk you to home and then I will go home and I'll call you when I get home. It's not that big a deal. And she just completely brushes off either woman's sense that something bad is about to happen. And of course, as we kind of approach the end of the story, she has said to both of her friends, you're home. We're good. I will call you when I get home. And she is alone walking down the street at midnight. And she hears the singing coming and she's like, Oh, oh, okay. That's, that's kind of creepy. And it's a, it's a wonderful sense. I'm getting, I'm getting chills while I'm, I'm talking about this. It's so stupid, but it's really, really good. Uh, she gets this sense that now that there's nobody to be kind of impressive around, now that there's nobody around to see her be brave. Now she starts to feel the fear. She is alone. There is nobody around. And she starts hearing this man singing 
off in the distance and she sees the shadows start approaching as she comes closer to the ravine and she starts getting very, very nervous. And then all of a sudden it's officer Kennedy on his beat. He's, he, he's a friendly police officer and she's like, Oh, hello. And he's like, Oh, you're, you're out a little late. Do you want me to walk you home? And Lavinia has this wonderful, wonderful kind of tipping point because up through all of the story, she has not seen this as a big deal at all. This, this, is, this is something to just kind of freak yourself out over. I'm not going to play to it. And she says, no, I'll be fine. And in her mind, she thinks, I don't know who the lonely one is. Why couldn't it be this officer? So she starts seeing even potential safety nets as dangerous at this point. So at this point, the, the story does tip over into this kind of paranoid fear that is just so well done by Bradbury. She says, no, I, 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 it's 137 steps down. It's across a bridge, 137 steps up, and my house is right there. And the officer says, okay, that's fine. I'll stay right here. If you need anything, just give me a shout and I'll come help. And she says, okay, that's fine. And walks along and now she's at the ravine. And she starts stepping down these steps and she hears the sounds of the frogs in the, in the bushes and, and the, the rushing of the river down there. And everything starts to be a mask for other sounds that might be there. The breathing of a man, the step of his shoe, all of these things could be there and she wouldn't be hearing it because of these nature sounds. It's so deliciously creepy. It reminds me a lot of the, uh, uh, Adventures of Ichabod Crane, if anybody has ever seen that old uh, Disney short where he's he's kind of riding through the woods and just all of these sounds kind of have this cacophony of of, of kind of dread that, that start building up. And she starts to, uh, her mind starts to play tricks on her. She's, she looks down and she says, oh my, oh my God, it looked like there was somebody down there and now there's not there. That shadow is gone. So what do I do? <laughs> I, I can't, I can't go back up. Uh, I would, I, you know, then, then he would be chasing me. So if, if I just kind of move quickly down and across the bridge and up the other side, I'll be home. It's, it's three minutes. Nothing bad can happen in 180 seconds. She says to herself, uh, it's just, Oh, it's so good. It's really, really good. So as she starts going down these steps and she's counting her steps, she's like, it's, it's almost time. And she hears an echo. She takes a step and she hears this echo of a step behind her. She takes another step and there's another echo. Somebody is following her. And at this point she breaks. <laughs> she just, she runs as fast as she can down these steps and she crosses the bridge and she hears the, her, her feet go over the bridge like gunshots and the, the echoes going back and forth. And she thinks that she hears somebody behind her and she rushes up the steps and she sees her house. And it's, it's almost there. Get, get to the porch, up to the porch and get, get the door open get the door, open. lock the door, lock the door. And she slams the door. She closes it and locks it and she's home and she's silent. And she's like, I'm safe. I'm safe. Everything is okay. But look out the window. She turns and she looks out the window and she says, nothing. <laughs> There's nobody there. There's nobody on the street. There's nobody staring through the window at me. There's nobody on the porch. There's nobody in the yard. It was my imagination. And she's like, oh God, I'm so stupid. I, I, I let this thing happen to me that I told my friends uh, not to do, you know, to get freaked out by your, by your own imagination. And as she's looking out the window behind her in the dark house, someone clears his throat. And that's where the story ends. It is 
wonderful. It is one of the best chase scenes in a story I have ever read. It, my hair was standing up on the back of my neck. It's kind of doing that right now. Every single time I read this, it creeps me out. It really, really does. The, the writing in this story is absolute genius. Ray Bradbury hits a home run on this, hits a grand slam with this short story. It is extraordinarily short. It's like 10 pages, maybe even, maybe 15, but it's, it reads so quickly because those last few pages, man, you are just tearing through them. And when you get to that end line behind her in the dark house, someone cleared his throat. It's just so great. It's a wonderful, wonderful short story. I do urge you to go check out a copy of it. Uh, you can find it online. I've seen it online, but I also suggest that you go get a copy of this book. You can find it in the used bookstore. Alfred Hitchcock presents Stories for Late at Night. We will, trust me, be talking about more stories from this collection. You owe it to yourself to go grab this copy it's so, so good. The short stories in here are masterful. Uh, the Whole Town Sleeping is one of the kind of the crown jewels, but by no means is it the only good one in there. So we will revisit this book in the future, but now we'll go ahead and, and lay it down and talk about next week. Next week, we have a normal episode coming up. It will be February and where I live, February is where winter has his uh, kind of last ditch effort to make our lives miserable. It's usually that's when we get our ice storms and snow and all that kind of stuff. So in the spirit of a cold month, we are going to look at John W. Campbell's Frozen Hell. Now, if you've never heard of this book, that's okay. I hadn't either for quite a while, but this is the book or a version of the book that the movie, The Thing from Another World from the 50s is based on. But more importantly, my favorite movie of all time, you'll know that if you listen to uh, October's 100 horror movies to check out for the month of October, my favorite movie of all time is John Carpenter's 1982, The Thing. Both of them were versions of this original novel by John W. Campbell, Frozen Hell. We are going to read that book and talk about it. It is absolutely spectacular. So that's the book that's coming up next week. If you have a chance, go get a copy. It's not very long. It's definitely worth your time, but that's where we're going to be next week. Thank you, of course, to Slaughterhouse for the use of his music. That is Slaughterhouse with a five and seven S. You can find his work on Bandcamp. You can follow me at thestorygraph.com username Libris Leonis, L-I-B-R-I-S underscore L-E-O-N-I-S, and see what I'm reading at any given point. And of course, you can find this podcast as well as some of my short stories, if you're interested, if you want to waste a little bit of time, at gildedandblood.com. Feel free to comment, uh, follow, subscribe, do whatever the heck you want, but uh, uh, hope you enjoy your time there. But until next week, stay safe and stay spooked.